Chapter Seven of Rose of the River by Kate Douglas Wiggin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rose of the River by Kate Douglas Wiggin. Chapter Seven, The Little House. The autumn days flew past like shuttles in a loom. The river reflected the yellow foliage of the white birch and the scarlet of the maples. The wayside was bright with goldenrod, with the red tassels of the sumac, with the purple frost-flower and feathery clematis. If Rose was not as happy as Stephen, she was quietly content, and felt that she had more to be grateful for than most girls, for Stephen surprised her with first one evidence and then another of thoughtful generosity. In his heart of hearts he felt that Rose was not wholly his, that she reserved, withheld something. And it was the subjugation of this rebellious province that he sought. He and Rose had agreed to wait a year for their marriage, in which time Rose's cousin would finish school and be ready to live with the old people. Meanwhile Stephen had learned that his maiden aunt would be glad to come and keep house for Rufus. The work at the river farm was too hard for a girl, so he had persuaded himself of late, and the house was so far from the village that Rose was sure to be lonely. He owned a couple of acres between his place and the Edgewood Bridge, and here, one afternoon only a month after their engagement, he took Rose to see the foundations of a little house he was building for her. It was to be only a story and a half cottage of six small rooms, the two upper chambers to be finished off later on. Stephen had placed it well back from the road, leaving space in front for what was to be a most wonderful arrangement of flower-beds, yet keeping a strip at the back, on the river-bank, for a small vegetable garden. There had been a house there years before, so many years that the blackened ruins were entirely overgrown. But a few elms and an old apple orchard remained to shade the new dwelling and give welcome to the coming inmates. Stephen had fifteen hundred dollars in the bank, he could turn his hand to almost anything, and his love was so deep that Rose's plumb-line had never sounded bottom. Accordingly, he was able, with the help of two steady workers, to have the roof on before the first of November. The weather was clear and fine, and by Thanksgiving, clapboards, shingles, two coats of brown paint, and even the blinds had all been added. This exhibition of reckless energy on Stephen's part did not wholly commend itself to the neighborhood. "'Steve's too terrible spry,' said Rose's grandfather. He'll trip himself up some of these times. You never will, remarked his better half, sagely. The risks in life come along fast enough, without running to meet em, continued the old man. There's good dough in rows, but it ain't more'n half riz. Let somebody come along and drop in a little more yeast, or set the dish a little mite near the stove, and you'll see what'll happen. Steve's kept house for himself some time and I guess he knows more about bread-making than you do. There don't nobody know more'n I do about nothin', when my pap's drawin' real good and nobody's thornin' me to go to work," replied Mr. Wiley. But nobody's willin' to take the advice of a man that's seen the world and lived in large places, and the risin' generation is in a terrible hurry. I don't know how tis. Young folks are always settin' the clock forward, and the old one's puttin' it back. "'Did you catch anything for dinner when you was out this morning?' asked his wife. "'No. I fished and fished, till I was about ready to drop, and I did get a few shiners, but land! They wasn't as big as the worms I was catching em with, 
so I pitched em back in the water and quit." During the progress of these remarks Mr. Wiley opened the door under the sink, and from beneath a huge iron pot drew a round tray loaded with a glass pitcher and half a dozen tumblers, which he placed carefully on the kitchen table. "'This is the last day's option I've got on this lemonade set,' he said. "'And if I'm going to Biddeford to-morrow, I got to make up my mind here and now.' With this observation he took off his shoes, climbed in his stocking feet to the vantage-ground of a kitchen chair, and lifted a stone china pitcher from a corner of the highest cupboard shelf where it had been hidden. "'This lemonade's getting kind of dusty,' he complained. "'I calculated to have a kind of spree on it when I got through choosing Rose's wedding present. But I guess the pig'll have to help me out.' The old man filled one of the glasses from the pitcher, pulled up the kitchen shades to the top, put both hands in his pockets, and walked solemnly round the table, gazing at his offering from every possible point of view. There had been three lemonade sets in the window of a Biddleford crockery store when Mr. Wiley chanced to pass by, and he had brought home the blue and green one on approval. To the casual eye it would have appeared as uniquely hideous, until the red and yellow or the purple and orange ones had been seen. After that no human being could have made a decision, where each was so unparalleled in its ugliness, and old Kennebec's confusion of mind would have been perfectly understood by the connoisseur. "'How do you like it with the lemonade in, mother?' he inquired eagerly. "'The thing that plagues me most is that there red and yellow one I had home last week lights up better than this, and I believe I'll settle on that. For as I was thinking last night in bed, lemonade is mostly an evening drink, and Rose won't be using the set much by daylight. Rootbeer looks the handsomest in this purple set, but Rose loves lemonade better than beer, so I guess I'll pack this un up and change it to-morrow. Maybe when I get it out of sight and give the lemonade to the pig, I'll be easier on my mind." In the opinion of the community at large, Stephen's forehandedness in the matter of preparations for his marriage was imprudence, and his desire for neatness and beauty flagrant extravagance. The house itself was a foolish idea, it was thought, but there were extenuating circumstances for the maiden aunt really needed a home, and Rufus was likely to marry before long and take his wife to the river-farm. It was to be hoped that in his case he would avoid the snares of beauty, and choose a good stout girl, who would bring the dairy back to what it was in Mrs. Waterman's time. All winter long Stephen laboured on the inside of the cottage, mostly by himself. He learned all trades in succession, love being his only master. He had many odd days to spare from his farm-work, and if he had not found days he would have taken nights. Scarcely a nail was driven without Rose's advice, and when the plastering was hard and dry the wallpapers were the result of weeks of consultation. Among the quiet joys of life there is probably no other so deep, so sweet, so full of trembling hope and delight, as the building and making of a home—a home where two lives are to be merged in one and flow on together a home full of mysterious and delicious possibilities, hidden in a future which is always rose-coloured. Rose's sweet little nature broadened under Stephen's influence, but she had her moments of discontent and unrest, always followed quickly by remorse. At the Thanksgiving sociable some one had observed her turquoise engagement ring, some one who said that such a hand was worthy of a diamond, that turquoises were a pretty colour, but that there was only one stone for an engagement ring, and that was a diamond. At the Christmas dance the same someone had said her waltzing would make all the rage in Boston. She wondered if it were true, and wondered whether if she had not promised to marry Stephen, 
Some splendid being from a city would have descended from his heights, bearing diamonds in his hand. Not that she would have accepted them. Only she wondered. These disloyal thoughts came seldom, and she put them resolutely away, devoting herself with all the greater assiduity to her muslin curtains and ruffled pillow-shams. Stephen, too, had his momentary pangs. There were times when he could calm his doubts only by working on the little house. The mere sight of the beloved floors and walls and ceilings comforted his heart, and brought him good cheer. The winter was a cold one, so bitterly cold that even the rapid water at the grey rock was a mass of curdled yellow ice, something that had occurred once or twice before within the memory of the oldest inhabitant. It was also a very gay season for Pleasant River and Edgewood. Never had there been so many card-parties, sleigh-rides and tavern-dances, and never such wonderful skating. The river was one gleaming, glittering thoroughfare of ice, from Milliken's Mills to the dam at the Edgewood Bridge. At sundown bonfires were built here and there on the mirror-like surface, and all the young people from the neighbouring villages gathered on the ice, while detachments of merry, rosy-cheeked boys and girls, those who preferred coasting, met at the top of Brigadier Hill, from which one could get a longer and more perilous slide than from any other point in the township. Claude Merrill, in his occasional visits from Boston, was very much in evidence at the Saturday evening ice-parties. He was not an artist at the sport himself, but he was especially proficient in the art of strapping on a lady's skates, and murmuring, as he adjusted the last buckle, "'The prettiest foot and ankle on the river!' It cannot be denied that this compliment gave secret pleasure to the fair village maidens who received it, but it was a pleasure accompanied by electric shocks of excitement. A girl's foot might perhaps be mentioned, if a fellow were daring enough, but the line was rigidly drawn at the ankle, which was not a part of the human frame ever alluded to in the polite society of Edgewood at that time. Rose, in her red linsey-woolsey dress and her squirrel furs and cap, was the life of every gathering and when Stephen took her hand and they glided upstream, alone together in the crowd, he used to wish that they might skate on and on up the crystal ice-path of the river, to the moon itself, whither it seemed to lead them. End of chapter 7